Welcome to Health System CIO's interview with Aaron Weissman, Chief Information Security Officer with Mainline Health. I'm Anthony Guerra, Founder and Editor-in-Chief. We'll get to our interview in a moment, but first, this brief word from our sponsor. Your organization doesn't compromise on patient care, so why compromise in the endpoints you deploy? iGel is the ultimate operating system for healthcare organizations using VDI, DAS, or SAS. And we're offering a free laptop on which to experience iGel's no compromise OS. Just visit iGel.com slash why compromise. Aaron, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you got it. Uh, looking forward to having a fun discussion. You want to start out, tell me a little bit about your organization and your role, please. Yeah, our organization is a health system in the Philadelphia suburbs. We're about 12,000 staff, uh, nurses, clinicians, etc. We have five hospitals, a number of different ambulatory and clinician sites, um, and a few corporate offices. Uh, as far as my background, I have been at Mainline Health for a couple of years. I was at Massachusetts Health and Human Services as their CISO for uh, approximately three and a half, four years prior to that. And then before doing that, I was an attorney with Health and Human Services for about five or six years as an assistant general counsel there doing um, IT contracting, information security law, IP licensing, et cetera. Um, I could go further back than that if you need, but I figure that's a, a pretty good overview. That's a good start. Uh, let's talk a little bit of, uh, more about the attorney action. Uh, that's very interesting. Uh, so you, uh, when did you decide to become an attorney? Uh, and then did you right away get into, it sounds like you were doing IT contracting uh, as an attorney. Um, just tell me how the the IT and the security and the healthcare evolved from wanting to be an attorney. Just get, take me through that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So I, I originally wanted to be an attorney, um, you know, specializing in technology. Uh, my undergrad, I didn't have a technical background, but when I was in law school, I very heavily got into intellectual property law, contracting, IT licensing, et cetera. Um, after law school, I went to Suffolk University in Boston to get an LLM, which is a master's in law in technology and intellectual property. Uh, my first job out of law school actually was at State Street Bank and Trust Company. I did finance work. I was in their, um, oh, uh, their uh, investment services, excuse me, office, uh, mm -hmm. working in their general counsel's office there. After a couple of years, the position over at Health and Human Services in Massachusetts opened up. As a technology attorney, I decided I wanted to do that. Um, and then as far as the, the transition into information security, um, I was one of two attorneys embedded with the IT department. So we were specifically hired to work with IT directly on their day-to-day -day legal needs. Um, obviously, Health and Human Services, very large institution in Massachusetts, about 22,000 employees, makes up more than half of state government, handles not only uh, MassHealth, which is state Medicaid, but also handles um, the SNAP program, Department of Developmental Services, Department of Mental Health, Public Health, et cetera. So a number of hospitals there, a number of other public services provided. Um, and, you know, I, I worked hand in hand with the CIO. They have assistant CIOs handling all the different agencies. I worked hand in hand with them. And Given my networking with them, when the CISO position came open, since I was counseling the CISO office and working so intently with uh, 
you know, the, the rest of the IT group, I, I put my name in the hat and, you know, they uh, like me, apparently, and like <laughs> me enough to keep me around for a while. <laughs> apparently, yes. Very yeah. good. Um, so this is your first hospital job, correct? So you were with Health and Hermit Services, but this is your first hospital job. Tell me about that. Uh, obviously, many you bring a lot of strengths to the table. Uh, the attorney thing I would imagine is huge. There's, there's tons of contracts that CISOs have to deal with. So you've obviously got a huge leg up there. I'm sure you still work with your general counsel, but mm -hmm. maybe you, you were able to vet some stuff before you send it over, whereas other CISOs wouldn't. Um, but it's also your first hospital job, probably a bit of a learning curve there, uh, dealing with physicians and things like that. But tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so Massachusetts does have some hospitals in public health and mental health. This is the first job where I'm specifically focused only on that area of practice. Right. Uh, in Massachusetts, it wasn't the biggest area of practice by far and certainly not the best funded um, compared to a private health system. So we are a non-for-profit private health system. Um, it has a lot of the same benefits with the mission, with the passion that working for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts did. Um, some of the different challenges though are the volume of biomed devices that we have, uh, some of the network challenges we have, et cetera. You know, working with clinicians specifically, all of the clinicians who worked for our hospitals in Massachusetts were there voluntarily and weren't there as their primary jobs, mostly. There, there were some certainly that were. Um, at Mainline Health, everybody's here is their primary job. Everybody has to care for patients day in and day out. Um, so things we do in security impact their lives greatly. Uh, I'll, I'll, my favorite anecdote is, you know, our passwords, right? Uh, having to log in and log out, having computers shut down and uh, sign out during the middle of the day, great security practices. If a clinician has to enter their password 60, 70, 80, 100 times, it's going to drive them insane. Right. Mm -hmm. And even though I might think, oh, it's 10 seconds, you know, every time they enter a password, that adds up. That is time they're not spending with patients. That's time where, you know, they take patient notes back to their office and they want to input those. So, you know, burnout is a thing that we care greatly about. And, you know, security contributes greatly to clinician burnout. So we want to make sure that what we're doing is both meaningful on the security side, but also limits the impactfulness to our clinicians. Did you have to learn that, uh, let's say, hypersensitivity to uh, impeding physician workflow? Did you have to learn that? Did you have to sort of burn your hand on the stove, so to speak? Or did you get it coming in? Did you understand it when you started? Yeah, I'd, I would like to be able to say that I understood it when I started. I 100% burnt my hand on the stove <laughs> five or six times before I learned my lesson. And, right. you know, it's a good lesson to learn and and one that I think isn't just limited to the clinician, you know, uh, environment. It, it, it is everywhere, right? Um, there was an article recently about someone who posted a TikTok video, I guess, about their hatred of Microsoft Teams and how terrible it was for their creative job on a day-to-day, -day, you know, work from home basis. It, it happens everywhere, right? So I, I think having that sensitivity towards the end user is something we forget, and I certainly forget about, you know, in information security, um, absolutely something we need to be mindful of. Well, I, I, I love your honesty, your refreshing honesty. It's, it's <laughs> so wonderful. It's true. And thank you for being honest and, uh, and real about it. Um, that's great. Uh, one of the things, so I looked over your LinkedIn profile, and I think you, 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 you touched on network. 
you mentioned that one of the things you did was overhaul the organization's security infrastructure. Can you tell me more, more about what you mean by, by that? Yeah, and specifically at Mainline Health, I, I came on in June 2020, so three months into everybody being home for COVID, three months into the lockdown. And it, parenthetically, uh, do not switch jobs if there's another lockdown ever. That was the most terrible experience in the universe. But um, one of the challenges for the organization is we had our hospitals open. We were running, I would say, at about 50 or 60 percent capacity, to be honest. Everybody else was home. You know, we had people who did image reading at the hospital who went home and did remote reading from their home offices. We had finance people, uh, HR, legal, IT even, that went home and worked from home and did so for about a year and a half before we started reopening in earnest. And, you know, the, the big challenge there is we had made just as I think a lot of other health systems and frankly, a lot of other organizations, real investments in safeguarding our crown jewels, all of which were on-prem, right? The focus was protect what you have on-prem, protect what you have in the cloud and you're golden. Uh, not a lot of places supported a remote, primarily remote work environment. When you move everybody remote, your threat landscape increases significantly. Everybody's house is now a an attack vector. Every computer that's at their house is an attack vector. So how do you compensate for that? How do you handle that? Our big thing for the first six to 12 months was, you know, it's not a fire we have to fight, but it's something we have to address immediately. How do we safeguard everybody in their homes? Um, and it, it, it's interesting to see how a lot of our solution providers really adapted to that very quickly and moved to cloud-based services. Um, moved to services that were, you know, more agent-based than had been previously, as opposed to like hardware EDR, for example, or, you know, hardware firewalls, um, you know, and really trying to figure out how to implement that very quickly. We, we have great, you know, partners, we have great support, and, you know, we have a great staff who's willing to engage in that sort of, I, I don't want to say cutting edge technology, because it's not totally cutting edge, but the way it's implemented, um, you know, sort of this unprecedented implementation of it. So that's that's the vendors kind of stepping up. Um, could you talk a little bit more about you know the security infrastructure? You're saying does that involve just you doing work and upgrades on particular things, or does that involve you working with the CIO? No, yeah, it involves me working with the CIO. It involves me working with our uh, assistant vice president of cloud and IT operations, uh, the folks in our strategic program office. Uh, the folks in our enterprise applications office who handle our EMR and all of the other supporting infrastructure that clinicians use on a day-to-day -day basis, really the, the staff at Mainline Health, um, the Herculean efforts to send everybody home and do so in a secure way, uh, you know, can't be understated. Um, so even though we've had great vendor partnerships, we've had great internal partnerships, great uptake in secure technology and great implementation of that secure technology. It sounds like you you know you mentioned all the individuals that that you have to work with. Obviously, it's a huge part of being a successful CISO is building those relationships with those key people. Uh, any advice or or things that you have found work for you when uh, trying to get a good partnership going, trying to make sure that you're going to support each other? Yeah, take people out for coffee. Um, or drinks, right? You know, whichever uh, people prefer.
But, you know, and COVID really got in the way of that. So for two years, it, it was all virtual. But, you know, really try and get one-on-one -on -one time with your major stakeholders, build a rapport with them and have them understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, however you need to do that, however you get to that point, uh, it's absolutely critical, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit more about third-party vendor management. Um, which to me, I, I suppose it, it includes cloud to a certain degree because a lot of these vendors that uh, the organization wants to bring on. So you've got a million departments, a million constituencies, a million requests for uh, applications coming on, right? So it probably goes up through IT governance. At some point, it, it hits security. That's probably part of the formula now. It's got to go through security. And it may be a cloud solution. It may be they're talking about keeping it on-prem at your site. It may be on-prem at the vendor's site, which I guess is also a variation of cloud, um, or it could be in a Google Cloud. Maybe theoretically you've moved your thing to Google Cloud. It could be a million di different flavors on where that application is going to live, so to speak. Um, yep. So just tell me about how that process is going now. It's a huge issue, um, not only vetting the new vendors that potentially are coming on, but going back and looking at the tens, hundreds, thousands, maybe not thousands, but certainly hundreds, maybe thousands of applications and vendors um, with COVID, a lot of things came on that didn't get the full security treatment. And now you got to go back and look at that. But just overall about third-party vendor management. Yeah, it's one of our biggest areas of growth uh, and one of our most aggressive areas of growth. Uh, there have been a lot of attacks really over the past year, year and a half only, where uh, a lot of threat actors are now attacking common solution providers. Those you know, third-party vendors that service a lot of different clients have a lot of very sensitive data because the, that's the best bang for the buck. Um, they'll pay so that they're not embarrassed. They'll pay so that their clients aren't embarrassed. So they have that reputational thing. And in the healthcare space, they'll pay so that they aren't subject to HIPAA fines and so that their clients aren't subject to HIPAA fines. So th there's a lot of incentive uh, for threat actors to go after those kinds of individuals. Um, a lot of incentive for us to try and safeguard that as much as possible. So um, IT governance actually reports up to me in our, our infrastructure or, you know, our uh, organizational structure, excuse me. And, um, you know, that's an area where we're primarily focused on evaluating vendor, evaluating vendor risk and evaluating the products coming in the door. So we do architectural reviews on the products. We do uh, security reviews of the vendors themselves. We use uh, some common rating services that provide a highlight of what vendors are doing, where they are for their security journey, et cetera, what their public posture looks like. Um, we found it to be pretty effective. Um, you know, obviously, if a vendor has a breach, that's always going to be a surprise. But we found the notifications coming from those services to be pretty quick, uh, sometimes even before the vendor notifies us. And, you know, we're able to address issues pretty, pretty robustly as a result of that. Have you also looked at the implications and impact of the downtime of any particular application, maybe just the major ones, maybe more than that? Do you look at that in terms of your business continuity planning on security side and try and talk with the business and the clinical users about, hey, if this does go down, what are we going to do? Like, what are the procedures for going to paper? What are the procedures for coming back to paper? Does that all get talked through? 
Yeah, and uh, my counterpart on the IT operations side had the prescience at the beginning of COVID to bring someone on to handle that business continuity and disaster recovery function. So we have dedicated staff handling that that coordinate with our office and are integrated in our incident response tabletop drills. They're integrated in our security planning, uh, disaster recovery planning generally, et cetera. Um, so they're an invaluable resource to have if an organization doesn't have those dedicated resources. I, I would highly recommend it. Let's talk a little bit more about incident management. Um, so uh, is that also uh, the individuals in charge of that? Uh, what I've what I've thought of, about a lot lately are the degree is the deg degree to which security executives CISOs need to interact with, discuss, and and sort of game plan more with clinical leaders, department heads, again, around the whole idea of if something happens. Uh, and then that also comes up around medical device uh, security, where that's direct, you could have almost immediate impact on patient care. Uh, and there are people putting together sort of clinical response teams that are integrated with security and things like that. So talk to me about the degree to which uh, IT security leaders who may have used to sort of live in their silo now really need to be out there understanding the workings of the business. Yeah, I encourage my directors to round as much as they possibly can. So get in front of those clinical leaders and, and really the, the frontline clinical workers understand what their day-to-day -day is and understand what they're doing to make the environment more resilient. Uh, you know, on the non-infosec side, we have downtime drills. A lot of hospitals do. It's very easy to say, okay, information security downtime can be integrated into these downtime drills, right? We can leverage current processes that are being used in order to make our environment more resilient against security threats. It's easy for us to integrate with our disaster recovery and IT operations folks to understand what's going on there. Um, very beneficial to be able to do that kind of stuff. And then when we run incident tabletops, you know, as you identified, having organizational and clinical leadership there is critical. Understanding what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it, and have them understand that as well is absolutely critical. Actually, one of the things that came out of our last incident tabletop, a, a criticism of it is that we didn't have enough frontline staff. Mm -hmm. So we included clinical leadership who is going to be organizing everything, which is great. We didn't include the people who have to implement the downtime drills, have to continue patient care. And there are real, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of the term, but, you know, there are champions of technology, champions of information security within our clinical staff that we can leverage for that kind of response. Those individuals are going to be included in the next round of downtime drills and, um, excuse me, incident response tabletop planning. So I think the more robust we can be, the better. And we're trying to build that robustness iteratively each time we run one of these exercises. And I, I mean, and that's why you run the exercises, right? Yep. You run the exercises to reveal something. And then the key is not just to have it revealed, but to take concrete steps that then resolve the issue. Exactly. Yeah. Very good. Uh, you mentioned rounding that you like to have your staff round. Uh, you know, there's everyone's working remotely. So as you're managing a staff of people, um, do you have thoughts? Do you have concerns about especially people that are hired in a remote only environment. They never worked sort of, uh, you know, face to face with colleagues. 
you've got people maybe around the country you're hiring out people fully remote some people coming in uh, i've heard different levels of comfort and discomfort with that uh, some are concerned about keeping people connected to the mission if they're never around uh, do you have any thoughts on leading a team when, uh, and you could tell me about the degree to which they're remote, but leading a team in this new environment, it's new for everyone. Yeah, and we are remote to a degree, but it's very important to our executive leadership since we are a community health system in the Philadelphia suburbs that people are integrated into the community. So the, the look and feel of the health system is important. Understanding that, understanding the communities we serve is absolutely critical. So we prefer to hire local staff if we can. And fortunately, we haven't had issues hiring local staff. Mm -hmm. um, we require staff to be in a certain amount of time per week. And, you know, by doing that, I think it eases the difficulty that, that you're highlighting that I think a lot of businesses have, which is, you know, hiring full remote staff. The expectations to come in are different. The expectations to be on site and participate in that company culture, totally different. Um, where we still have that physical presence and where that physical presence is still valued. Again, we have five hospitals and, and a ton of clinical sites. So it's the, you know, those are open 24 seven. That is what we are supporting. We need to figure out how to support that best. It, it's an easy value proposition to say, hey, your job is going to be better and easier if you go on site, if you talk to these people, and if you meet your colleagues on the business side and the operations side. So it's actually been a pretty successful model, I think. Um, we're still working out exactly what that looks like and working out some of the kinks, but I, I, I think it's been working effectively so far. Very good. All right. Uh, sort of a general general high-level question. Um, from a big picture point of view, what are the top – you can take this either way. Either the top couple of things you're working on or just the top trends you're seeing, maybe something you want to highlight your colleagues – highlight for your colleagues that you've got your eye on, but maybe not everybody else does something that you're looking at. So either way, either you're, what you're working on or trends you're seeing. Yeah, I don't know that I have any high level trends that I'm monitoring that other folks don't. You know, clinical burnout is a real and critical issue. Security environmental threats, very critical issue. You know, ransomware threat actors, et cetera. You know, my big initiatives are we're looking to alleviate both of those to a degree. So one of the things we're looking at implementing is badge tap access at all of our clinical workstations. The idea being that if we can ease how clinicians interact with the PC and make that easier and more approachable, it's going to be more secure. We're going to get passwords off computers, get passwords off walls. It happens literally everywhere. And, you know, we're really trying to figure out how best to do that in a way that is beneficial and acceptable to everybody. Um, as far as dealing with ransomware attacks, again, it's building the infrastructure and the muscle memory that we need as an organization to be able to defend against those and have early warning and detection against those. And then, you know, recovery from that as well and pursuing options for how do we continue clinical operations in the event of wide scale network computing downtime, et cetera. Yeah. So uh, obviously, you know, ransomware, the biggest way I guess it comes in is people clicking on the wrong thing in an email. I mean, yep. there's still, you know, business compromise emails. So um, tell me about how you work to create an organization that's got good, I hate the term, but cyber hygiene, um, you know, a high, high IQ around IT security. 
do you who do you work with? Do you bring marketing in? Do you do you leverage the marketing folks? Uh, you know, with signs and things like that around the organization, um, phishing, uh, you know, internal phishing attempts to to see who you get and then try and educate them. But tell me about how you try and create that security culture. Yeah, there are a number of different ways, and you mentioned two of them. Um, so we work with our digital marketing team to figure out how we handle that uh, through banners on the desktop, through communications, et cetera. We do the phishing exercises internally. We do phishing education on a monthly basis. Uh, we also work with HR to coordinate with managers. Okay, how are we best manage messaging this out to teams? How are we communicating that appropriately? And then we work with our public safety group uh, and our patient safety group. And there are a lot of different uh, techniques we have internally for you know stopping the line. Uh, we use STAR, which is and in the healthcare industry, an industry standard uh, measure for, uh, not measure, but exercise for identifying and remediating risk. Uh, so we try and leverage those clinical ideas as much as possible to make it tangible to our clinical staff and make sure that our clinical staff is behaving in a safe way. So, and again, tying it to patient safety, right? There's a lawsuit going on in Alabama right now where a patient died in a hospital that was attacked by ransomware. The allegation is that, you know, the ransomware was the proximate cause of that death. We obviously don't want to have that reputational impact internally. Clinicians don't want to have that impact to patient care you know, the reduced patient outcomes, et cetera. So we're, we're really looking to tie all of that together. And in addition to the communication, in addition to the training, really say, okay, this is patient safety. Do you, do you have discussions with HR that involve deciding what, uh, what the actions are going to be taken against an individual if they click on the wrong thing, maybe repeatedly, or is that completely HR or is part of what you're supposed to do is communicate to HR the implications of these things so they can then decide how severe to be? We work hand in hand with HR, but if I had to describe the process, it's the third option you mentioned, which is we communicate it with HR, we have a conversation with HR. HR ultimately includes that in its performance management. Um, and they have a performance management schema for pretty much everything at the health system, phishing, you know, compromise uh, is now one of those things that is included in that performance management. So I've heard the the, the CISO described as the chief risk officer, uh, and and it's your job to understand risk and communicate risk, uh, but perhaps not to be the one deciding on how much risk the organization wants to take on or any particular part of it. Uh, so do you see that? Do you agree with that? Your job is to communicate risk to the people who will then decide, but not ultimately be the one who decides on the risk level that will be accepted? Yeah, and I only agree with that because I pushed for that so hard. Yeah. We developed an operational risk assessment and authority to operate process internally. It mimics what uh, NIST recommends and what the federal government has implemented, where really we document risk, we outline where we see risk, and then the business operations teams decide whether or not to accept that risk. We then report on it on a quarterly basis. And, you know, by risk profiling the organization like that and identifying where we have hot spots of risk, I think people have become a lot more aware of risk and a lot more receptive to conversations around risk. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder if CISOs, and I'm sure it happens, get in a, a situation sometimes where uh, – 
more risk is accepted than they're comfortable with. And I guess if that happens, you just have to decide if that's a place you want to work. Exactly. Right. Because the breach is still going to be on your resume as having been working, (laughs) having worked there when it, when it happens. So it's a very interesting balance. Um, Okay. uh, We're just almost out of time. I wonder if you had any final uh, piece of advice uh, for your CISO colleagues, uh, something that you found has, has really worked for you and, uh, you know, in your experience, uh, just anything you want to offer them at this point? I, I would say persevere. Uh, a lot of the fellow CISOs I've talked to, a lot of the CISOs I worked with on the legal side, you know, it, it is a drag sometimes, right? You know, you're pushing an agenda, you want to push security. To your point, some organizations are just more risk uh, accepting than others. It is difficult on a day-to-day basis to deal with an organization, I think, where you don't align on a risk posture with them. Um, You know, one option is certainly finding a place that does. And I've been very fortunate in my career to find a couple of places that align with my personal risk tolerance as well. Um, You know, what what my professional opinion would be. but, you know, if if you're unwilling to leave your organization or you want to challenge, you know, persevere and keep pushing for the risk acceptance that you want to see. Uh, and, you know, I think eventually it, it, it's difficult not to be able to make that case effectively over time. It, it just takes time. It takes effort, you know, and really being able to communicate that tangibly to the business in a non-technical way is absolutely critical. I love the phrase you just used, align on a risk posture, because it really explains where you want to be. Um, and I guess that's something you're going to try and figure out during the interview process. As, as, a, as a security professional, if you're interviewing for a CISO role, that would be one of the things I would think would be one of your objectives during an interview is to see, are we aligning on a risk posture? Because it could go either way. The organization right. could be too risk averse or the organization could want to take on too much risk. So too much risk, you're risking a breach, not good. Um, But uh, the other way, too aggressive, and you're inhibiting user experience, and then you're going to have people screaming at you all day, I can't work like this. So you want to align, right? Absolutely. And either you find it out during the interview process, or you find it out in the first month you work there. But you you will find it out very, very quick. (laughs) And that's not a situation we want to be in. I'm sure no. that's not <laughs> right. Right. Well, excellent. Excellent uh, talk today, Aaron. I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate your time as well. Mm-hmm.